You are listening to the DFJ Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu. We're honored to have Craig Barrett of Intel uh, here today as our speaker. Uh, over 40, for 40 years, Intel has grown from a startup uh, that helped put the word silicon in Silicon Valley. Um, to now it's a household name with its products in over half the households in the entire world. Um, Craig Barrett has been part of Intel for 35 of those 40 years, and I'm proud to say that Craig started his career here at Stanford, where he got his bachelor's, master's, and Ph.D. in material science. After he graduated, he stayed at Stanford for another 10 years. We couldn't get him to leave. Uh, and taught in the, as part of the material science, uh, uh, material science faculty until 1974 when he joined Intel. Um, he became an Intel vice president in 1984, a senior VP in 1987, an executive VP in 1990, elected to the Intel board of directors in 1992 and named the company's chief operating officer in 93 and became its fourth president in its history in 1997 and then CEO in 1998 and chairman of the board in 2005. Just an illustrious career for a Stanford uh, alumni. Uh, Craig retired from the board in May 2009, and uh, with that, I uh, give you Craig Barrett. Well, it's indeed a pleasure to be back here. I, I showed up on this campus 52 years ago as a freshman, and I can tell you a few characteristics about the university at that time. Uh, one is there were still trolley tracks from downtown Palo Alto up Palm Drive to the campus. Uh, you could drive your car and park it anywhere without a parking sticker at that time. And uh, we used to joke, and it's probably still true today, that you could tell the difference between the faculty cars and the student cars. Student cars were more expensive than the faculty cars. <laughs> And perhaps even more significantly, the tuition was $250 a quarter when I started. I understand it has increased slightly over this time. The, uh, I ended up at Stanford a little bit by mistake. Uh, my life's desire was to be a forest ranger as I grew up in high school and uh, wanted to be a forest ranger. And I, uh, only applied to a couple of schools, and uh, I applied to Stanford, quite frankly, on a lark, because I knew I couldn't afford to go to Stanford. Uh, but I was accepted, and Stanford doesn't have a forestry department, as you may know. And so I had to major in something else, and so I kind of chose engineering as, as close to forestry as I could get to at the time. And, but I didn't know what to major in in the engineering disciplines. So I asked a good friend who was in my high school math class at Carlmont High School, which is just a, six or seven miles up the road from here, what he was majoring in. I know he was going to San Jose State and he was going to be an engineer. And he said, metallurgical engineering. And I said, that's really cool, Tom. Uh, what's metallurgical engineering? And he didn't know either. <laughs> so my next obvious question was, how do you spell it? Does it have one L or two Ls? And uh, he didn't know that either. But I did choose to write down metallurgical engineering on my application to Stanford with two L's, which is the proper spelling. International Nickel Company had a scholarship for someone who chose to major in metallurgical engineering. I was probably the only person in the history of Stanford that said I wanted to major in metallurgical engineering. I got the scholarship so I could pay the $250 of tuition a quarter and come here. And then that led to other things. And so that was the first really serious decision I made in my career was how to spell metallurgical engineer. <laughs> I came here and I've, I majored in metallurgical engineering and it turns out that uh, this was near the Sputnik time frame and every metallurgical engineering department in the world changed its name to material science. So I actually majored in material science. And, the predecessor to the material science and engineering department that exists here today, the other MSE department in the School of Engineering. You guys can't figure out how to have <laughs> unique acronyms for your department names. It's, we wouldn't allow that at a place like Intel. <laughs> but 
I, the, the second decision that really impacted my career was I actually fell in love with material science. I, I fell in love with the, the concept that you could figure out why materials had the properties that they have. You know, why does steel sometimes soft? Why is it sometimes hard? Why is it sometimes brittle? Uh, you know, what gives properties, uh, electronic properties, magnetic properties, optical properties, materials? Kind of how do you relate the microstructure to the physical properties of materials? And I was intrigued by this. Um, uh, probably the thing that really got me going in this area was one day that I, I had an old 1949 Ford convertible and the owner of this car prior to myself had modified it such that uh, to get in the trunk there wasn't a key latch and anything to go to. There was a little solenoid button under the bottom of the car you had to press and it activated the solenoid and opened the trunk and you could get into it. Uh, that thing ceased to function and it was the fact that the spring didn't have the right properties and so I was going to be really smart and I got out my little uh, propane torch and I heated this copper alloy spring up and I can tell you it ceased to become a spring very quickly and I wondered why that had happened in my whole life and then I got into material science was able to figure it out. But I majored in material science, fell in love with it, had the opportunity to get a three degrees here, then go to Europe on a NATO postdoc fellowship, then come back here and teach for 10 years, which was a magnificent time. And when I came back, it was teaching, and this was 1965 now to 74, something else was happening here, and that was Silicon Valley was being created. It was a semiconductor industry, which at that time had worldwide sales of about a billion dollars. And so it was relatively small, but it was centered to a large extent here in the Valley. It was Fairchild, National, uh, a few other companies were growing. And, and one of the things I learned very quickly was, in fact, that material science was kind of at the core of all of this semiconductor processing, semiconductor technology. It was really microstructure complex structures you made in creating transistors and properties and materials. So I, I did a little bit of consulting with some of these companies and I can remember spending uh, many long hours uh, in the Peterson building, which is, where is it? It must be over in that direction somewhere. And the x-ray lab there and doing x-ray topography, which is a very simple imaging technique to, to image defects in silicon wafers and you can map out an entire silicon wafer. And, People were interested in the introduction of defects into their processing technology and the function of thermal cycles and chemical doping and all that thing. So I, I did quite a bit of consulting and met a lot of people in the industry. And uh, one thing led to another. One day someone phoned me up from Intel, one of the, the gentlemen who I had met at Fairchild. And he was looking for a ceramic engineer, of which I was not, but we also had no ceramic engineers in the material science department, still pretty much a metallurgical engineering department. And I said, well, we don't have any of those that you're looking for, Gene, but how about a frustrated associate professor who would like to do something else with his life than teach? Uh, get, because my interest had kind of migrated more towards uh, application of technology. So I ended up at Intel on a leave of absence and ended up there for 35 years. Uh, and there are two things that, that occurred to me at Intel. One was a, a continuation of the observation I had made when I was at Stanford consulting for the semiconductor industry, which was that material science was kind of at the basics, basis of all of the things going on with semiconductors. Uh, the manufacturing, the technology, the printing smaller transistors, the lithography, etc. And the other thing that I found quite intriguing was, in fact, there was this thing called Moore's Law. And how many of you have heard of Moore's Law? Uh, how many of you read the original article in 1965 in Electronics Magazine? That's kind of what I thought. Oh, one. <laughs> uh, anyway, you know, Gordon Moore was founder of Intel, uh, but he really had written the paper about Moore's Law when he was at Fairchild as really the head of their R&D effort there. It, I just noticed that integrated circuits started in about 1960. It was now 1965, five years later. He noticed a certain trend, and if you plotted the number of transistors per integrated circuit over a five or six year period, it looked like it was a, a log a plot or a linear plot in a log scale. 
So it kind of meant that you were doubling every 18 months or so in terms of transistors and transistors related into functionality, performance, a whole bunch of other things. If you read the article, it says very simply, uh, hey, I've made this observation. It can't possibly last, but it's interesting that it's gone so far, and maybe it can last for another five years or so, but it, it, nothing continues to double for very long in nature. Uh, and I then had the pleasure, when I was working at Intel, interacting with Gordon Moore for 35 years, and every year I would ask him about Moore's Law, and every year he would say, it's going to die soon, <laughs> and we are now, you know, 40-some years later, and it's still going, and it's pretty cool that it looks like it's going to go for another 15 years or so. So uh, Moore's Law will probably end up uh, having 60 years or so of history before you have to change that basic transistor structure. And uh, it will change. There's no question about that. Just as vacuum tubes kind of died when transistors came along, transistors will die when the next electronic switch comes along. We just don't know what it's like. You're doing lots of research here at the university on that. It's a great entrepreneurial effort. Uh, something will have to happen. But Moore's Law is, is very interesting. Uh, and the pursuit of Moore's Law has been interesting for the last 35 years. I have to take you back a little bit to the, the founding of the semiconductor industry. And, and it turns out it was founded by a bunch of chemists and physicists and electrical engineers. And, and I don't want to demean any of those categories of people because they're probably represented here in the audience for some degrees. But I can tell you almost unequivocally that most of the folks that I dealt with in the early days of the semiconductor industry had no idea of material science, had no idea of the relationship of microstructure to properties and what could happen. So if you happen to be a material scientist and you knew about dislocations and vacancies and diffusion and phase equilibria and all these cool things that we study in material science, you could be a superstar in the semiconductor industry. Besides that, I'd gotten conned into writing a textbook when I was here, The Principles of Engineering Materials. And so I got to go to Intel and, and they thought that I knew something I didn't know very much, uh, but I knew at least a little bit about material science. And so it was a really fun time. Now, what's Moore's Law and, and what's it do? It says you double something every 18 months or so. You double the number of transistors in an integrated circuit. When I went to Intel in 1973, 74, the state-of-the-art circuit was something called an 1103, which is a 1K dynamic RAM. 1,000 bit, and each bit was basically a capacitor. So it had about 1,000 capacitors and a little decode circuitry on the edge, so roughly 1,000 transistors or so. And today, we have a couple of billion transistors. So we've increased the functionality quite a bit, and as I said, you get another 15 years or another six or seven doublings, and you can take yourself up well beyond a billion transistors or so functionality. And along with, with the functionality, you've you got all sorts of devices. You've got dynamic RAMs and static RAMs and CMOS clock chips and, and CCD-type devices, which are really imaging-type devices. And then you've got microcontrollers and microprocessors and all the analog circuitry. So incredible functionality increase over that time period. But also pretty interesting along that time period is as you scale transistors down, everything good happens. They get faster. They consume less power. You can pack more of them in. You get more functionality. So it's, it's really kind of a, a self-fulfilling cycle. The other interesting thing is uh, when I joined the industry, the manufacturing plants that we had were considered to be fairly sophisticated. They cost a couple million dollars. Uh, today, our manufacturing plants are pretty sophisticated, and they cost several billion dollars. So we've scaled up the cost of the plant very substantially over that time period, roughly a thousand-fold increase in the cost of the manufacturing plant. But if you look at the underlying cost aspects of this technology, the cost to create a square centimeter of silicon in 1970 is about the same as the cost to create a square centimeter of silicon in 2009. It's a couple of bucks a square centimeter. So in 1103, that 1K dynamic RAM I mentioned that they were producing in volume at Intel when I joined it uh, would sell for, you know, three or four dollars. 
And today you can make a microprocessor, microcontroller with maybe a hundred or several hundred billion transistors to sell for exactly the same amount. Now, how did that happen? How do you get a, you know, a, a thousand-fold increase in the cost of the plant and the cost of the output stays the same in absolute dollars? It's pretty easy. First of all, you went from very small wafers to very big wafers, and so you got uh, roughly a, a 10 or 15-fold increase in the area that you process on each wafer. The yields went up by a factor of 5 or 10. The throughput or the size of the factory went up by a factor of 10 or so. So you get three factors of 10, you get a 1,000-fold increase out of a plant that costs a 1,000 times as much. And it translates to absolutely anti-inflationary static cost. If you want to relate the cost of processed silicon to something, it's roughly the same cost as real estate in Tokyo. Okay, and if you, if you calculate a square foot of real estate in Tokyo, that's about what a square foot of processed silicon costs you. And that was really when Tokyo was at its high point from a real estate value, it's probably down a little bit. Uh, but it's quite an amazing feature that you can have that same cost for that same unit area of silicon and every 18 months or so, you're able to cram twice as many transistors into it and get twice the functionality into it. And we've now been doing this for 40 years or so. So that's, that's been uh, quite, a, uh, quite an accomplishment, I think, for the industry. Now, I mentioned before that when I joined Intel, it was populated by a, a lot of physicists and chemists and engineers in general. And they were great technologists, and they invented all sort of new circuits, uh, new devices. Uh, but frankly, we, in the initial stages of the company, were not very good at manufacturing devices. We were great technologists, and we would bring new circuits into the marketplace. And we'd make a few of them, and we'd make some money on the first few that we sold, and then other people would come along and manufacture them and give us stiff competition. And the only way we were able to survive <clears throat> is continue to go to the next generation of devices, the next generation of technology. And the Japanese-based companies were especially uh, competitive in this respect. They had really learned how to manufacture in volume and were very cost-effective and high quality in their manufacturing capability. In fact, in, you're now 20, 25 years ago in the mid-1980s, you're at a time frame when the Japanese-based companies, NEC, Toshiba, uh, Fujitsu and others were really, um, if I can use an indelicate phrase, kicking butt, uh, really taking it to the American manufacturers. And companies like Intel were in serious trouble at that time. In fact, I can remember very specifically a time frame when the many noted academics, I don't think any here at Stanford, but certainly a lot at Harvard uh, and on the East Coast, were telling us at Intel that you guys are crazy to be in the manufacturing business. You ought to just design circuits and leave the manufacturing to someone else because you will never compete with the Japanese-based companies. And that was in about 1984-85 that this pronouncement was made. It also is when companies like Intel were starting to lose money because we could not uh, adequately manufacture devices. So our company was faced at a serious decision at that point in time is, what do we do with our future? Do we follow this uh, academic advice and get out of the manufacturing business and just become a, a designer of circuits? Or do we, in fact, uh, try to become a manufacturer? We actually chose the latter approach. And I can remember leading uh, airplane load after airplane load of our executives and our people to Japan, touring Japanese factories. Uh, talking to them about manufacturing technology, uh, seeing what they did on their manufacturing floor. And after about two years of that, we went into a huddle and we concluded that they weren't doing anything very sophisticated or anything very secret. Uh, they were just applying good engineering principles and engineering discipline, statistical principles and statistical control discipline. And uh, they had set a series of high expectations on what manufacturing lines could produce. So we came back to the U.S. and 
committed ourselves to that, trained the entire company on statistical process control, design of complex experiments, all those sort of uh, things that are good engineering discipline, but were lacking on the manufacturing floor. And by 1988, 89, 1990, we'd improved the situation quite dramatically. And probably one of the, the uh, most uh, proudest moments of my professional career was when, after having visited Japan about 20 times to learn how to manufacture in the mid-1980s, we had a constant flux of Japanese executives to Intel headquarters to see how we were manufacturing in 1990. We had completely kind of turned the tables. And so that, that's when really the company became, I think, noted as a manufacturing uh, a powerhouse of sorts. But it was really the application of engineering discipline and engineering principles to the manufacturing floor. And it was not the sort of thing that the scientists and engineers automatically bring with them out of school to a manufacturing floor. But we'll, we'll get a little bit to that later on. Uh, one of the, uh, the topics that uh, um, we became known for in that time was something called copy exactly, which was a, the fact that we had half a dozen big manufacturing facilities and each one of them had a plant manager and each one of them was really king of their domain or queen of their domain, looking at the audience. Uh, and they had absolute rule over what went on in their manufacturing plant. It was a little bit like a, a, a department head here in the School of Engineering. I presume that you have absolute rule over what goes on in your department. Of course, <laughs> of course at least you think you do. Uh, but. The problem we had was we'd have these six manufacturing plants nominally running the same technology with different sets of equipment, different processes, different recipes. And if you ever tried to move a product from one plant to another, uh, it was next to impossible. And these people, none of the, the plant managers were willing to give up their autonomy or their, their control. So I, I can remember a meeting that we had one day where we had, uh, uh, there were, 21 uh, senior manufacturing executives at Intel. I was running manufacturing at the time and I called a meeting and, and I was projected that we would change the way we would do business in the future rather than having independent factories. We would have very closely linked factories. Every factory would look the same, would run the same recipe, have the same equipment. And I was basically telling the managers who were there that I was taking a lot of their authority away from them. And one of them, uh, raised his hand and, and basically said, you know, this is a different style of management you're suggesting, Craig. Uh, do we get to vote on it? <laughs> and having counted the number of participants in the meeting, 21 as they walked in the room, I said, yes, we're going to vote, but I have 22 votes. And that's how this, uh, this, this concept, which uh, has given some notoriety, called Copy Exactly, which is every one of our factories today looks the same has the same paint, the same tile, the same air conditioning, the same equipment, the same recipe, and they all operate absolutely identical. It drives a lot of uh, our people nuts because they, they think that you should be allowed to twist knobs to optimize at the local level as opposed to running a common recipe across the board. But we kind of do it the McDonald's way. You know, if you go to any McDonald's around the world, the French fries all taste the same. If you come to any Intel facility, our products behave the same and are manufactured the same. We can easily transmit them from one, one uh, area to the other. So along this so, uh, 20 or 30 years that I've kind of tried to capsulize for you, there were uh, really three things that I thought were, were very, very important. Uh, one was Moore's Law, and Moore's Law has been the roadmap for our industry. It's run since 1960, so we're approaching 50 years. It's not a law, it's an empirical observation, but it is the roadmap. And it is so ingrained in the industry that in fact, uh, people are fearful of falling off of Moore's Law's extrapolation on their watch. You know, the senior managers all say, it's not going to die under my watch. And the new young engineers we get in the company don't know any better and they think it's going to continue forever. So for last, probably the last 30 years, we've been saying Moore's Law is going to last another 10 or 15 years. We're still saying that today. It would be wonderful to come back in 
10 or 15 years and talk to you again and see where we are in that respect. But Moore's Law has been the direction dictating the industry forever. Now, there are a lot of naysayers to Moore's Law, and they usually fall into one of two categories. They either fall into the category of financial analysts and the press who haven't a clue about the industry and a clue about the technology, and they all say, well, this can't continue because nothing continues to double. Besides, it costs too much to do that. And I told you the thousand-fold increase in our manufacturing plants, what these guys don't ever recognize is you get a thousand-fold increase out for that extra thousand-fold increase that you put in the cost. And the other category of naysayers are competitors who don't like to spend money, who would like to just put a manufacturing plant in and then run it like a petrochemical plant or a power plant that has amortized its output over 20 years rather than having a two-year cycle of technology. But the leadership companies in the world have adopted Moore's Law as their technology strategy, their technology roadmap, and we do all sorts of things to perpetuate it, including a lot of research in universities like Stanford to help drive that forward. The other thing that I think has been constant in, in the industry has been the engineering effort that's involved to follow Moore's Law. And it's all sorts of engineers. It's not just material scientists, but it's chemists, physicists, mechanical engineers, computer scientists, double E's. I mean, to go from a thousand transistor device to a two billion transistor device is, is not a trivial effort. We used to design devices with two people. The first microprocessor was designed by basically three people. Uh, Hoff, Eugene, and, and Stan Mazur. Uh, Today, one of our microprocessors eh, may take a team of 500, 600, 700 engineers to do the, the physical design and layout, and then you have additional hundreds of people who are doing the simulations and doing the verification at the end. So everything has rather scaled up, but it's all predicated on strong engineering talent, and which is why we hire essentially only masters and PhDs into the company to come in and work as engineers. A bachelor's degree really is not sufficient capability. And the third thing that has driven the industry, very simply, is uh, the usage models. And you are all familiar with the usage models. Uh, the usage models are PCs and then various varieties of uh, cell phones or smartphones like this BlackBerry device. And the fact that you, uh, you know, are selling hundreds of millions of PCs a year and a billion or so cell phones or handheld devices a year consumes an immense amount of silicon. And I want to just stop for a moment and personally thank all of you in the audience because you represent the generation that says you don't have enough processing power, I want more, you don't have enough communications capability, I want more, you don't have enough imaging capability, I want more. You are really the lifeblood of driving our industry, so thank you for that. <laughs> but it's, you know, it is really that, uh, that usage characteristics and the invention of the internet or the deployment of the internet kind of helped along the way because that's allowed electronic communication to, you know, you can sit behind a terminal and reach a billion people easily. Uh, and uh, when I was in your position sitting in this, this room, uh, you know, 40 or 50 years ago, I mean, we had mimeograph machines uh, and we had handwritten Back, you know, letters back and forth, and we had telephone calls, and that's about all we had. But everything has changed, and that usage model has really driven uh, capability, along with Moore's Law and all the engineering talent that went into that. So enough of history. Let me, let me trans, uh, position myself to just give you five simple bits of advice, and then try to take your questions. And these are bits of advice that I've noticed in the industry, and 35 years or 40 years of watching the industry and going through 11 recessions, uh, not as all severe as this last recession or as severe as the dot-com bubble uh, of 2000, but we've had 11 or so full-blown recessions in the electronics industry in the last 35 years. Uh, the first is very simply, uh, there is no replacement for sophisticated problem-solving methodology in life. And you, you can describe problem-solving methodology in a whole bunch of ways, but engineers are good at problem-solving because that's what you do. And there's perhaps also 
is the reason why if you look at the most common <coughs> educational background of Fortune 500 CEOs, it's not law, it's not business, it's engineering. So I think the training that you get at a university like this in problem solving is absolutely fundamental to success in life in whatever you choose to do, entrepreneurial effort, work for a big company, whatever it is. And problem solving methodology, whether it's a plan, do, check, act cycle like Walter Schuert proposed in the 1920s and, and is still very valid today, uh, or just getting people to agree on the definition of the problem they're trying to solve is one of the most important things you can do in all business world. And if you don't believe that the case, just look at the healthcare debate in Washington, D.C. today and try to get any two of our elected representatives to define the problem they're trying to solve. And you'll find that none of them will be able to define the problem. And if they do define the problem, no two will define the problem in the same way. So problem-solving methodology and getting a common definition of where you're trying to go is absolutely critical. Uh, by the way, you learn little tricks along the way, like if you are faced with a problem in life or in business or in technology, just start asking why. It's impossible to not get to the root cause of something by asking why four or five times. But you have to make sure that you don't get a bullshit response along the way. And, and people always give you answers which are related to not the fundamentals, not the root cause, but they'll talk about something peripherally and you say, no, no, why did this happen? And then if you give me an explanation why that, okay, what caused that to happen in this way? So you ask why about five times, you, you do very well. Another fundamental business uh, tenet, I think, is always changing the rules. Um, quite often people feel that they are captive to the environment that they find themselves in, uh, that they have to continue to do things in the same way. But quite often you can just artificially change the rules. And if you change the rules, that quite often will give you a heads up in the world. And I'll give you one very simple recent example of changing the rules. How many of you have an iPod? What did Apple do? to make the iPod so successful when the, there were generic MP3 players around everywhere. They changed the rules by all of a sudden making downloading music legal with iTunes. And so now you could buy a device, you could go to their website, you could download music legally or illegally. But they changed the rules and how MP3 players were sold. And were an incredible success. And they also had great industrial engineering and, you know, one of the things that Steve Jobs and his team does is fantastic is the user interface and the industrial engineering that goes into that user interface. But they basically changed the rules of the device. Uh, have you heard of a company called Nokia? What did Nokia do to change the rules? This happened many years ago uh, when a company called Motorola was the premier communication company in the world and was still selling analog telephones, cell phones. And Nokia decided, oh, there's an opportunity here. Nokia had actually done some work in computers, and they were digitally literate. And they said, oh, probably digital communications is going to be more important in the future than analog communications. So Motorola sat on the old analog systems for a long time. Nokia moved over to the digital side, changed the rules of the game. And you look at their relative positions in the market today, it's really related to that decision they made at that time. And you could go on and on. Kodak, how many of you have heard of Kodak? How many of you have a film camera that you use? <laughs> What's the matter with you two guys? <laughs> you know, but Kodak, uh, bless their heart, they did recognize that the rules were changing around them and with digital photography. Uh, but they were really wed to their business model, which was film and paper business model. And they let the environment change around them, and Kodak today, and Fuji as well, are, are mere shadows of themselves. Because they didn't change the rules, they let the rules change them. And companies like Intel, we've done lesser things along these lights. Uh, how many of you have ever seen an Intel Inside logo? You know, it's, it's probably the most successful ingredient branding program ever in the history of the universe. It changed the rules. 
you know, Intel, we, didn't, we don't interface with anybody who buys our stuff directly. We do it indirectly. So to deal with them indirectly, we had to have an indirect advertising, marketing, branding campaign. It's Intel inside working through computer manufacturers. Changed the rules, gave us a leg up competition. Uh, we also, at one time, uh, and computer companies in the U.S. and around the world were, found themselves to be kind of continually outsourcing their engineering and doing less and less R&D to move the technology ahead, computer technology ahead. We found that as manufacturers of microprocessors, it, it was important for us to do their research for them and then give them that research for free. How else could we sell our products if they weren't going to do the research and the engineering on the next generation computer? So we created something called Intel Architecture Labs, which was a, basically an Intel-financed computer industry research organization, doing research for the computer industry as a whole. And there are lots of examples that you can go through in that area of changing the rules. Anytime you can change the rules ahead of the competition or change the rules before they get changed on you, uh, will do very good things for you in the marketplace. The, the third observation I have is no matter how big your company is and how good you think you are, you do not own all the smart engineers in the world. There are lots and lots of smart ideas and smart engineers that don't work for you. So how do you capture their talents? How do you use them? Uh, we talked about this a lot internally in the early 1990s and said, well, one of the ways you can do that, and one of the ways you can use all that smart engineering talent to your advantage is, in fact, to become the world's largest high-tech venture capital company and to fund research and startups in your general computer internet area that complement your own work. And Intel is today the largest high-tech venture capital company in the world, with billions of dollars in our, our portfolio and hundreds of companies in our portfolio. And the process of thought there was simply, there are a lot of bright engineers out there. We would like them working around our general space, creating technology into the marketplace that complements our own to grow the market so we can grow our sales of microprocessors. Again, is it kind of a changing the rules of the game, but also recognizing where the talent resides. And we also recognize not just Intel, but the industry as a whole, that, that universities like Stanford and Berkeley and Michigan and, and many others are top flight universities with great researchers. And that's why we put together basically $100 million a year where we fund university research activities to complement our industry, to make sure that Moore's Law continues to move forward. But it's that basic concept that you're not an island you don't own all the resources. You need to figure out how to make use of those resources to your benefit, even if they don't work for you. And if, you're, if you make intelligent venture capital investments, you not only get the output of those people, but you get the benefit of, in fact, their success. That flows back to you as the equity investment you've made in them. You know, along those lines, I'm always drawn by the, the power of universities like this type uh, to be disruptive influences on industry. And the way I usually like to describe this is uh, Intel Corporation has an R&D budget of about $6 billion a year, which I think is even bigger than the Stanford School of Engineering's research budget. Microsoft has a budget probably of 7 or $8 billion. If there's a Microsoft person in the audience, you can correct me, but in that range, slightly more than Intel. And every time I look at those two companies, and I'll, I'll pick Microsoft as an example here, and look at the challenges that those companies have with their huge R&D budgets, absolutely huge R&D budgets. What are the life-threatening challenges that occur and where do they come from? And the life-threatening challenges to Microsoft have not come from IBM or Hewlett Packard or SAP or Oracle or any other big company with a big research budget. But the three near-death experiences for Microsoft came from one or two researchers at a university with a bright idea. Netscape, the internet browser, University of Illinois or the Illinois Supercomputing Consortium, whatever it was called, and Yahoo, Stanford University, Google, Stanford University. 
Each one of those instances was one or two graduate students, bright engineers, with a bright idea, able to challenge a company with a multi-billion dollar research budget. And that's why I think research universities like Stanford are so important, and that's why it's so important for companies to maintain good relationships with you guys. We don't want you eating our lunch uh, on a routine basis. We'd like to have access to your ideas before you take them out in the marketplace. <laughs> but the individual idea is in fact really the key strength uh, around the world. And there's no underestimating the value of the single smart idea. It can take on the largest corporation and bring it to its knees almost overnight. And it doesn't take a big research budget to do that. Uh, I want to say one other thing about if, if any of you aspire to become an executive in a company someday. Uh, start growing the thickness of your skin right now <laughs> because uh, you will be a constant target uh, uh, for commentary from two uh, directions. One is the, the press and the other the financial analysts. And uh, I don't want to sound defensive, but neither one of those categories of people knows anything about our industry, but it uh, never hesitates them from writing about our industry on in a continuing basis. Uh, I'll give you uh, two examples. By the way, you know, there's a standard rule in the industry if you're a CEO that you're never as good as the press says you are and you're never as bad as the press says you are. And when they're saying good things about you, it's really cool. When they say bad things about you, it does get under your skin a little bit. That's why it helps to have thick skin. But two really simple examples uh, from my own personal experience. One was in uh, 2000, there was something called the dot-com bubble burst when valuations of of companies uh, like Intel went from three or four hundred billion dollars to a hundred billion. We, Microsoft did the same thing, Cisco did the same thing. Every company lost about 70, 65 to 75 percent of their capitalization. And dropping hundreds of billions of dollars in the marketplace almost overnight um, is not a good thing for your shareholders and not a good thing if you're CEO at that time. But what we did uh, at that point in time is we thought we understood our industry better than the financial analysts who were saying, you guys are dummies, don't you understand there's a recession, don't you understand demand for your product just dropped, you should have big layoffs, you should stop capital spending, you should stop investing in R&D, you should just recoup, you know, go in a corner and sit there until things get better. And we said, no, 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 uh, we follow Moore's Law. And what is Moore's Law says, there's new technology every two years, and doubling at capacity, and besides that, Gordon Moore, our founder, uttered a, a famous saying one day which says, you can never save your way out of a recession. You can only invest your way out of a recession because the only way to get out of a recession is with new products and new technology. So how do you get new products and technology? It means you beef up your R&D budget and you beef up your capital budget to be able to produce that new technology. So for 2001, 2002, 2003, the, uh, the press and the analysts had an easy target to shoot at. It was Intel. And, at CEO for this ridiculous fact that we increased our capital spending and our R&D spending in the worst recession our industry had ever seen. 2004, everything turned around and we had one microsecond of glory when they said, you know, we've been criticizing Intel for the last four years or three years on their stupid decisions. Turns out they were right. And so, okay, Intel. Now they turned around and started criticizing us on something else the next day. But you have to get used to that and, and have kind of a, a thick skin associated with that. Uh, the other area that, that uh, associated with the dot-com uh, bubble collapse was, well, industry valuations went way up and a lot of people in the industry went on acquisition sprees because there was going to be no end. You know, the internet traffic was going to double every 30 days, which was a common idea at that point in time. So telecommunications sector was red hot, electronic sector was red hot. And uh, Intel did a series of acquisitions and we bought about $10 billion worth of companies. Our market value at the time was about $400 billion. That works out, I think, about 2.5% of the market cap of the company went into acquisitions. It was a, kind of a, a de minimis, trivial amount if you were managing the company and saying, what's the big deal? Uh, but the press and everybody said, just can't believe this. They spent $10 billion on acquisitions and what do they get for it? Uh, never pointing out that, in fact, it was a 
2% of the value of the company and we were acquiring technology to make the company successful in the future. Grow a thick skin, uh, it's part of the management deal. Let me conclude very simply the following, uh, which relates to what you're doing here and relates to international competitiveness. Uh, there are only three things any company or any country can do to be competitive, and you're part of two of them. Uh, what makes companies and economies and countries competitive is smart people, people with good education that can add value to what they do, that's why you're here. Smart ideas, and that's the R&D budget, that is creation of the ideas for the next generation of products, services, companies, startups. And then the right environment to put smart people together with smart ideas. And you actually see some of that here in Silicon Valley, although perhaps less and less as we go forward. Uh, what happened in Silicon Valley was that you had smart people and smart ideas coming out of Berkeley and Stanford and elsewhere. You had venture capital money here, which was funding startup companies. Venture capitals basically started here in the Valley. In fact, Intel was the first, I think, officially uh, founded company with venture capital from a, a guy who still does work in San Francisco, Arthur Rock. Uh, but you had smart people, smart ideas, and the right environment for people to invest in innovation. Uh, so if you're managing a company, smart people and smart ideas in the right environment to be successful. If you're President Obama and managing the country, it's smart people, smart ideas, and the right environment to get people to invest in innovation. There's no other formula that works. Uh, I think, by and large, a lot of the high-tech companies have done it right over the years. I'm not so sure about Washington, D.C. With that, I'll open it up to any questions you might have. So, uh, Craig, thank you. Uh, as I uh, mentioned, and uh, some of our audience knows, uh, part of this audience is our MSNE uh, 278 class, the Spirit of Entrepreneurship, uh, which surrounds this class. and. Uh, they get the first couple of questions, so I will uh, uh, read them. Uh, you translate them? I'll translate them, and then we'll open it up to the uh, rest of the audience. Uh, you alluded to, in fact, a couple times in the speech, the importance of an uh, educated uh, workforce to Intel. Um, and I know Intel, uh, under your tenure, had an uh, even more sharpened focus on education. Uh, you know, now that you're out of Intel, what would the three things you would change about education in America if you had a magic wand? Uh, the three things relate not to university education. Uh, university education, I think, works perfectly well for all the reasons that public education does not work well. Uh, you get well-qualified teachers or faculty in universities. <clears throat> you set high expectations. And you have feedback loops. A feedback loop is if you're a researcher and you can't get research funds in a university, that's a feedback loop, which you would understand. If you look at K-12 public education in the United States, it suffers from a lack of quality of its teachers. Uh, in fact, if you look at math and science teachers across the United States, uh, the probability of getting a math or science qualified teacher is, you know, 60 or 70 percent at best. And I'll let the audience do the mathematics. If you need to have 12 good math teachers in a row and the probability each year of getting a good math teacher is 70 percent, it's a near-perfect filter. You can do the math, it's 0.7 to the 12th power, it's less than 1% chance of getting 12 good ones in a row on average. So you need better teachers, especially for math and science. You need higher expectations. We have dumbed down the education system in the United States. Uh, if you look at nearly any state that has an exit exam for high school graduation, they're a joke. They're designed on eighth and ninth grade. And you guys who've taken them, you know how bad they are. So we've dumbed down the expectation level. And then as far as a, a feedback loop or how the system responds, uh, uh, President Bush tried to institute one of the simplest feedback systems in the world called No Child Left Behind, which was just uh, a study of our kids succeeding, our teachers succeeding, our schools succeeding, our administrators succeeding. You know, if you're an engineer and you run a company, you don't do things without measuring things. You don't make decisions without data. NCLB was an attempt to make data available so you can make decisions. So if you look at K-12, through basically poor teachers, low expectations, and no feedback loop. Uh, 
Other than that, it's in great shape. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad I asked. Um, the next question uh, uh, actually was focused on your career path. Uh, most of the way through it, you were running manufacturing or in the manufacturing side. But when you became president, CEO, and chairman of the board, you had to make allocations between um, investments in the process side and investments in the product side and architecture. How did Intel think about that balance of constantly having to renew uh, capital investments in <coughs> process versus new investments? Well, uh, it's a challenge if you, if you choose to rigorously follow Moore's Law, which is two-year cycle on process technology, which means you have to redo your plants every two years. Big, big ticket item. Um, the thing that we've done is, we, first of all, we do the financial analysis. Does it make sense to follow Moore's Law? And unequivocally, it always makes sense to follow Moore's Law. That doubling you get in capability more than pays back for the cost of the investment. The other thing we did is to make sure that everybody in the company understands that the success of the company is Moore's Law. You follow Moore's Law, you have leading technology, leading products, you're successful. If you don't, you're not. So when we get in tough times, there are two things that we don't touch or cut. The R&D budget and the manufacturing capital budget. <clears throat> and even though we're, we're laying off finance guys and marketing guys and gals and, and uh, human resources people, uh, we're never cutting those two items because everybody in the company knows the only way the company is successful, the only way my stock option is worth something, is in fact if we're the technology leader. can't be the technology leader unless you invest. So there's never any animosity, never any second guessing. You've got to keep the R&D budget whole and then the investment in the new technology. Got it. And last question, for the, uh, last question from the class, and then we'll open it up to the audience, uh, was uh, given that every generation of computing platforms seemed to switch processor technology, mainframe to mini, mini computer to desktop, Intel owned the desktop, and the mobile platform now emerging. How much did Intel worry and how much investment in, was it that Intel was going to break the mold of some new entrants uh, owning mobile rather than Intel? <laughs> well, we in fact uh, concentrated heavily on computing side. <clears throat> you know, we, we kind of flipped that trend that you mentioned on its head. It, it used to be there was a different technology for mainframes, different technology for uh, minis and, uh, and servers, and different technology for desktops and laptops. We kind of turned that around. There's by and large, a common architecture now, with some exceptions, everything from the smallest laptop computer up to the biggest, uh, uh, you know, petaflop machine, supercomputer. It fortunately is mostly built on our architecture, which is nice. And other people have, have experienced negative that. We, quite frankly, did not pay much attention to the cell phone industry for really for two reasons. One is we were concentrating on processing power that was what was driving desktop and big compute. And processing power carries with it the burden of electrical consumption. And that's contrary to what you have in cell phones. So we didn't focus heavily on the low power devices. And <clears throat> much of that market got ceded to ARM and other architectures. Uh, we're now more serious about going to low power Intel architecture devices and going after that market. But we didn't pay much attention to that for an extended period of time. By the way, the other reason we didn't pay much attention to it is that during that time frame, the 1990s and early 2000s, the average selling price for an Intel microprocessor was you know, $150 to $200. The average selling price for an ARM processor to go in a cell phone was five bucks. It was not a difficult decision to make. Um, let me open it up to the class um, in the back. How did you convince the uh, Japanese electronic manufacturers to, to let you come in and observe their process? <laughs> well, it was a combination of things, uh, really. I mean, first of all, the industry is pretty open to that and, and those sort of visits. And I think the Japanese were incredibly proud of their capability and, and didn't think anybody else could copy it. And so we're proud to share it. Uh, the other thing you have to remember is there, there was maybe, don't have to remember because you're not that old, 
Uh, but there was a, pretty much of a uh, trade war going on between U.S. and Japan at that time. And I think the Japanese folks were trying not to exacerbate the nature of that trade war by being open and inviting people into their country. But they were very open, sure, and, and uh, much as we were when they came back to visit us later on. Next question. Come for it. What is Eagle's uh, biggest death threat and what comes after Moore's law? <laughs> um, the biggest death threat is that uh, as Andy Grove would describe it, only the paranoid survive. So the death threat is that you, you lose your paranoia. You, start, you, you stop the, the relentless advancement of Moore's Law and technology. Uh, every time we have had problems in the market, it's usually not so much competitive threat as it is we did not meet our own plans. We had a, a development program that didn't meet its criteria for some reason. So usually we would say our biggest challenge is our own ability to do what we plan to do. And the, what is it? What comes after Moore's Law? Oh, what comes after Moore's Law? That's for you guys to figure out. I mean, I, I think Moore's Law is good for another 15 years. You know, I retired in May. You're just starting your professional careers. It's your challenge. What comes after Moore's Law is pretty critical. You know, they're simple. A, a switch is going to replace the transistor. And the question is, what switch? And nobody's decided that yet. Yes. Actually, so following up on that point, I was curious what you thought the role of the internet, distributed computing, embedded computing is going to be playing towards maybe moving beyond the physical limitations of the slot. Well, there's no question that, that everything from, I mean, the internet, which was a huge driving force for computing for every reason possible, also gives you the possibility of uh, more distributed computing capability, cloud computing, and all that. Uh, but I, I think fundamentally what you have is the, the human desire for personal computing element, and that's why a PC is called a personal computer. It's, it's not a dumb terminal like the PC replaced, and so I don't see us going back to dumb terminals which are, always have to be connected to do something. But you will see consolidation of uh, server farms and things like that for higher utilization of that resource, for sure. Um, I might have been self-processes and everyone uses them, but then we also like competition. And um, so I know the EU is concerned about competition in this space. Uh, I'm from Europe, Denmark. And, and I, I mean, when I think of Americans, I think of them as very competitive. But in your space, the desktop space, there's virtually no competitors because you've been so good. Do you think um, competition, there should be more competition, and how would you want to stimulate competition? Because some say when there's competition, there's innovation. Well, I'm not quite sure how to phrase this question. But, uh, well, we'll forgive you for me, you're from Europe. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, the, uh, the American uh, antitrust issues are designed to protect the consumer. Uh, the European antitrust laws are designed to protect the competitor, not the consumer, which is why we have problems in Europe because Nellie Crows and the Competition Commission are designing their decisions and their actions to protect competition. That's point one. Point two is if you look at this industry from any objective measure, it is the most anti-inflationary, most competitive industry known to mankind. If you don't believe that, go to the Department of Labor, which tracks 1,400 commodity devices, including one of those 1,400 is the microprocessor. What about the PC space? We have, well, and we compete fiercely and have done for 25 or 30 years. And, you know, it's, it's, every time I hear that question in one form or another, I, I, I think back, okay, we've been following Moore's Law for 50 years. How much more competitive can you get? There's no, Moore's Law is actually, we're kind of speeding it up rather than slowing it down. And that is because of the inherent competition in the industry. Ergo, how can you say there's no competition? I tried to say that to Miss Crows to no avail. Let's take uh, two more, actually one more question and uh, right there. So you mentioned that engineering discipline was critical to Intel's success in manufacturing. Could you give an example of what you mean by engineering discipline? Oh, I, 
very simply, if you look at a, uh, a typical process technology where you, you take a bare silicon wafer and turn it into a, a high-performance microprocessor, probably 200 manufacturing steps or 200 variable steps involved in that. And the control of each one of those steps, you know, it may be that you're laying down a thin gate oxide and it has to be four monolayers plus or minus zero. How do you, and this is not kidding, and that, that's what, what you're doing across a 12-inch diameter wafer. Now, how do you achieve that? And how do you measure that you're achieving that? How do you measure that you're in control? If you want to change one of those 200 variables, how do you do it intelligently when natural drift and some of the other variables may be bigger than the variable that you're changing? So how do you design the experiments with that many variables to make sure that if you change something, you really have the right answer associated with what you change? Uh, you can then just take it to the more mundane stuff of, of uh, uh, scheduling, uh, it's a batch processing industry. How do you schedule effectively to get maximum utilization of your multi-billion dollar resource? Every step of the way is, is engineering discipline associated with it. So Craig, thank you very much. You have been listening to the Draper Fisher Jurvetson Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find additional podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu.